we we are all fallible creatures we are not the only we're not the sole source of knowledge and truth in public health and there are things we're going to get wrong and we made the fundamental mistake of thinking oh if we just kind of project enough confidence and say things with enough authority we'll probably be right and it'll be fine it's like no you have to embrace that that uncertainty and people will respect that people respect a little bit of humility every once in a while so i hope that answers your question it's not about the scientific details it's about being in the right state of mind with the public to know that this is not going to be a perfect road. It is time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land the of promised speaking land, the truth land, and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. The problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. This is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally, 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 rally. rally. We've got to be that creative minority, creative minority, creative minority. Find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble, it was good trouble, it was necessary trouble. Franklin, I know we've got to do something. It's Jeffrey. What's up, dude? Oh, you know, just enjoying the the times, uh, you know, the current times where, uh, uh, well, how do I put it? Um, I'm stuck in my room. In my room. You're, you're one of two of our hosts currently quarantined. Well, you know, it's it's a thing. <laughs> and, and here's, you know, I, I, I have to laugh at this because... My my way of dealing with things is one of two ways. It's either um, sarcasm or jokes. And usually one kind of plays into the other. Right. So I've taken to writing like a, you know, a little journal to my friends, like Ooh. short little blurbs. Uh, and basically it's just me being a sarcastic asshole going, you know, something like day one of quarantine. Is this the oppression that we were told about? And we're, <laughs> we're told to fear. I have snacks in my room and I, I fear that they'll run out by the afternoon. Mm. I had to charge up my Nintendo switch and things were rough. <laughs> Please pray for my safety. You know, shit like that. Well, they're giving you a quarantine time period so you can gather your guns. So when they come to your door, it's a little easier to take them. Well, you know, given <laughs> given I, I know oh, where mine are. We have our guest early. I like this. Oh, our guest is early today? I, I have no problem with that. I did Ooh. give him an open time frame, so that's fine. I have so, nothing political to add, so <laughs> him entering this conversation at this moment is really perfect. Hey, you know what? It works. Uh, yeah. You know. I guess uh, you know we can we can all you know well Dan and I can commiserate together about being stuck in in quarantinos, right? And our and our partner over at Inspirations Beyond Disabilities, Jay, just told us he had COVID, and he had to quarantine too. It stinks all the way around. It's it how did how did he handle COVID though? That's the question. Was he that, vaccinated, and how did he handle it? He was vaccinated. He is handling it. This is day two, so. Mm. We'll see. But I mean, he's visually impaired. He's literally blind, blind. And so I want to know the perspective on that. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I think of all these things, but there's certain signs I see coming. You know what I mean? But to just be blind and throwing up or blind and sick, what's that like? You know? Well, you know, I mean, especially like I will say that this probably will give us a very unique time to get information on how. COVID affects people with disabilities, various disabilities, you know, not, not even just like, you know, health wise, how does it affect you, but you're, you know, just what do you have to go through when, you know, when, and if you have to quarantine from a specific illness, I mean, and maybe Dan can probably testify to this a little bit, but you know, when it comes to any type of playbook regarding a pandemic, it's not just, you know, you, you have your general advice, but then, you know, I'm sure that you'd like to have a little bit more specific advice in terms of what you're going to be dealing with, you know, and, and how to get through a particular period. Exactly. If anybody thinks this is just too much, imagine trying to like wipe your butt with your left hand. 
You know what I mean? It's just that that's what I'm talking about. The awkwardness of having to do something just when you don't have the tools to do it. But that's so very anti lefty of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever claimed me of being a leftist. That's true. <laughs> Slow clap there. That's funny. Because I am a leftist. I, I like to say I hide as a moderate moderate because my progressive leftist ideas would scare people away from the show. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I wouldn't say you're a leftist. Like <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't put you I, I, I wouldn't put you as a leftist. I would I would definitely peg you more towards the left. Right. I'd be making but, vac- vaccine bullets and having the National Guard just go and shoot at, at Trump rallies. That's I'm me, like, you know? I, I, don't <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know where that falls in the spectrum. <laughs> Seriously, because my brain my brain just went to a Ma Deuce with a belt-fed syringe system. There you go. Yeah. A little well, Batman. A little that's Batman. why we have that. That's why we have that two-dimensional graph, right? It's like left versus right and authoritarian versus libertarian. <laughs> right. Yeah, and we all fall into the center. Yeah, right. I I think the technocrat is coming back, though. You know what I mean? I think good people are going to start running for office in good levels. You know, people without the agendas that we're talking about. But we're going to talk about COVID today because you're here and I'm excited and I have some questions. But I want to start with the shingles vaccine. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah, go for it. Cool. Because well, I'm 50 and I was going to get the shingles vaccine, but Medicare won't cover the shingles vaccine ironically believe it or not because it's already in my body <laughs> and so what i what i started to wonder was if it's already in my body what how is it a vaccine so you, hold up so you be, they wouldn't cover it because you because shingles doesn't care i shingles oh, no, no, wait, so you, you because you already had chicken pox right because that's shingles whole, is already in my body. That doesn't I, make any I can't sense. get a that's vaccine whole, from that's Medicare. That's how shingles works is you get I, that's, I was like, are you, are you eligible for Medicare coverage because you're over 65 or no? Oh, I'm, I'm on disability. Oh, I see. I, I apologize. My mistake there. Oh, no but, problem. Um, I'm proud of it. I fight for the rights of the disabled. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, um, I think so. I think one of the things is... Um, I don't know where you got that information, but generally the shingles vaccines are are the one the currently one Shingrix is authorized for people who are over a certain age. I think it's sixty. Right, I can so, get it. It's one hundred and ninety dollars though, and Medicare won't cover it because it's not preventative. Because I already have it. You already have shingles. Right, so there's oh. no use giving me a vaccine to prevent something I already have. I see. Okay, it, that's what my doctor says. The insurance logic is, and of course, now we we do medication through insurance, not through medical advice. Yeah, that 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 seems that seems a little complicated. So let's let's yeah. take a step back. So so shingles is caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox. It's called varicella zoster virus or VZV. Mm. Um, what happens is VZV, when you get the first infection, which is like the classic chicken pox, typically when you're a kid, um, uh, it goes, there's, there's multiple phases of the infection. So it starts with being what's called an acute infection, which is like, you get the virus, you get exposed, you get sick, you recover Hmm. during that recovery period. Um, the, the virus can actually kind of go what's called going latent. They start a latent infection where it buries itself in your dorsal root ganglia, which are nerves clusters like right at the base of your spine at different uh, different levels. And so you, you start with the like the pox of the original actual viral infection that gets into the nerves and gets down there. And as you get older and immunocompromised, or if you Ooh. reach an immunocompromised state, that latent infection can surge back and that's why you actually have when you have shingles uh, rashes, they're usually like very one sided and very localized because usually they only come from a single um, uh, reactivated nerve. And so mm-hmm. where you get the rash is where that nerve kind of literally enervates that's part of your body. So you see pictures of people with with shingles vaccines or shingles uh shingles infections on their face where half of your face is like right it's right down the middle because the, the right side of their face has one set of nerves and their left side of the face has another set of nerves so um but yeah so i i'm a little surprised to hear about how it's like you already have shingles therefore it's you know the whole point is so it'll prevent future shingles right. you know uh, rashes but but the shing it doesn't stop the infection because you're already infected 
Well, what it does do is it keeps the uh, it helps your immune system keep the latent infection at such a low level that it doesn't turn into the disease that we know as like the nasty rash. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's kind of how it works. And there was, and that's the the most recent one that's uh, approved is Shingrix, yeah. which is 2017. Um, but yeah, that that that's generally how shingles vaccines work. It's not preventing infection; it's just repressing a latent infection. I'm I'm happy to get the shot and pay for it, but then Medicare had to chime in separately while I was asking my doctor's advice on it. You know what I mean? Because I'm a good person. I ask my doctor about vaccines and <laughs> and that's what she told me. And Medic Medicare had to chime in. I'm still gonna get it. Now it's just the principle of I have to continue to fight about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I guess underscores the the idea of having, you know people versed in science and policy fields right it's like oh it's, mm-hmm. it's not like you have it and recovered that's not how shingles works you can have recurring rashes of shingles multiple yeah. times throughout your life and if you have shingles already i mean you're still going to have a response you could still potentially have a response as you get immunocompromised more and more so that the vaccine does help so right. sorry you have to go through that regulatory hurdle but I don't have to. It's just I'm going to I'm going to get the shot, but then I'm going to go to Medicare and complain to them until they do something about it. Because that's what I do. Like I have nothing but time to incessantly irritate people into action. <laughs> you gotta love being a squeaky wheel. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And 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 that's the thing is is like, you know, what is what does the cost of actually taking care of shingles look like? You know, right. when you have an outbreak. I mean, my brother in law, he's he's in his, you know, he got shingles in like his mid thirties, uh, mm-hmm. early thirties, and you know, it took him down for a good solid week. You know, you think about that, it's like, okay, so what? What's what's the what's the line in the sand here? Because yeah. that's a week that he wasn't productive, and granted, he really didn't need to seek medical attention. What if you do need to seek medical attention? That shot seems to be a pretty decent bet on not having to go seek medical care. But, right. uh, you know, it's kind of that whole changing the oil versus changing the engine mentality. Right. <laughs> that's, where, that's also the entire point of having a vaccine. It's, vaccines are not going to stop people from dying on mass, right? I mean, that, that is the goal ultimately. But most of the vaccines that we have, most of the infections for which we have vaccines, rather, they don't kill 90 to 100 percent of people, but they do mess with people's lives very substantially. And that's when we have to have the public health discussions, not just about like, you know, this is what irritates me and other public health folks. We talk about, oh, COVID has a 99% more uh, survival rate or whatever. It's not just about survival. It's about quality of life. It's about hours lost. It's about productivity to society. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's frustrating when you have to engage in those discussions. And it's not, oh, you didn't die. So you're fine. It's like, is that really, is that our, is that our, is that our level of compassion is, oh, congrats, you didn't die. <laughs> well, well and and even even from you know just just because you know i feel like i'm in a particular mood for some fuckery um you know it's it's one of those <laughs> things where it's like it's not even about death you know J- jason and i we've had the conversation about what's the cost of long covid for people who are not going to be able to return to the workforce yeah. you know you you talk about having a burdened uh health system right now now imagine the people that are suffering from long COVID after this are constantly going to have to be coming in to get care because they're going to be fighting what many people have already fought. The fact that, you know, you're searching for care. Doctors don't believe you when you say you have an issue and you're constantly being run through the health system at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars only to be told that there's nothing they can do for you. So it's not, you know, even from a, even from a financial perspective to the individual, and I would argue to, you know, say the Medicare and social security system on itself, mm-hmm. that's going to be an excess burden that could have probably been avoided 99% if, you know, you went and got the $25 shot a couple of times. You know, and I think that sword cuts both ways because I mean, you, you made some absolutely excellent points about patients having to run around to, um, like their their lives are being inhibited not just by having a disease, but also by the complications of managing the finances and the logistics, right? It cuts yeah. both ways because there's a lot of people who are in health leadership who just don't understand what it's like to not have, you know, really good insurance that pays for stuff at the drop of a hat or insurance that you can just write a check and move on and you know, all right, that's a couple hundred bucks, that's fine. I mean, I, I've been in conversations literally during the height of the pandemic when I was still like working in like frontline COVID outbreak response. 
And my my bosses and the local government would just throw up their hands like, why would people not quarantine? I was like, I don't know, because they make seven fifty an hour, and if they don't go to work after they've been told that they've been exposed, they they don't ha- they're not working a job that allows them to have paid time off. They need the money. They're going to need to pay rent if they just they can't just dip out of the workforce on paid leave for fourteen days, right? So there's there's complications that that go. It's not just about you know knowing the science and knowing how to manage the finances. It's how to understand the cultural stresses that disease puts on our society. And that is a huge part of modern public health that we're just trying to get our kind of get our feet under. People are understanding the issue, but we're having that issue of getting the people who are starting to understand and have the public health and the cultural background into positions of authority where they can make substantial change. Well, and I think too, like at least here, what what the local government here started to realize is, is that you couldn't shut down businesses and still maintain uh, your government spending rates because, well, you know, people aren't working, people aren't spending money, people aren't paying taxes, your budget just gets shot to shit. And so suddenly, you know, a lot of people here were like, oh, well, I guess we got to figure out a way to keep businesses open. It wasn't ever a discussion of, okay, well, how do we maintain the spending at which we had, but keep people in a safe environment quarantined away from others and they still haven't figured that out here you can't tell people to stay home and shutter their businesses and not compensate them for the fact that they're having to stay home and shutter their businesses and and that's how you saw you know tens of thousands of small businesses go under in the first year of the pandemic you know they didn't have the safety nets in place in order to be able to shut down and pay their employees and pay their mortgages and pay their loans and pay their employees and pay their benefits and suddenly you had a bunch of people out of work you just watched that number skyrocket this really didn't take a whole lot of thought to figure out anybody who sat back and went yeah this is going to look terrible we we all sat there and went okay so how do you take uh how do you compensate people and keep businesses open and honestly this is where i you know i've said on the show a couple of times this is where social security was really truly meant to thrive in the case of a very adverse event in human history you were able to pay people to maintain a basic standard of living but that that system is shot to hell because it's been leveraged against for every possible thing ever. And so I'm kind of curious, Dan, what would you think? Like if social security was meant to maintain a basic standard of living for people, if this system had not been leveraged and we had reached a pandemic like that, I know that it's probably like a a fever dream, but what do you think the impact could have been in terms of public health had that social safety net actually been in place for people to use in a time like this? It would have been outstanding. Well, I'm not going to necessarily talk about like social security specifically, but having a more robust safety net for small businesses in general would have been a huge answer to a lot of the problems that we have because without dissing anybody, the reality is that especially like, you know, on the borderline, just barely making ends meet small businesses the people associated with that are very often the people who have the highest per capita public health burden, right? Those are where you see very high rates of disease, both infectious and chronic. That's where you see rates of cancer. It's, it's, a, it's a very complicated series of cases, and it's nothing against those individuals. It's, it's a societal issue that we have to face. And so when you impose a burden on those folks that they just simply cannot um, comply with, and say it's public health and then for you're doing two things one you're making an enemy of them and you're making an enemy of yourself but two you're not actually realizing that you're you're not solving the actual problem so i think if, if it was more uh, properly handled in the first place i think it would have been great and and actually there's there's pretty good re- research on this i'll dig up some papers for you guys if you're interested but um since we're kind of more than a year since the start of the pandemic closing in on two there have been some papers published on like looking at regions that pub, uh, adopted certain policies and how effective certain policies were like associated with reducing levels of covid and the number one thing that was the by far the strongest way that we were able to prevent covid in those in different locations was when those locations had stay at home orders for people who were staying staying home when sick stay home when exposed uh, and having the 
proper infrastructure to make sure that they followed that. Because the reality is, you know, wearing masks and PPE, it's effective, it helps, but it's way easier to just have people stay home if they're worried about being sick and then have some kind of alternative for them to work. That doesn't, you don't even have to wonder whether or not the mask is working at that point, right? right. So we have the evidence to show that those policies are the most effective to stop, you know, communicable disease. And that's what we've been doing to stop them forever in the history of public health. Um, but well, we just it, needed to navigate that. And it, we, we just completely whiffed on that. And it was a real serious problem that, that, that continued to pay really nasty dividends for us. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have to laugh because hearing you say that, it just reminds me of the conversation of, you know, abstinence versus, you know, uh, safe sex. The only way that you're not going to get a disease is to not have sex. But if you're going to do it safely and here's all of the things that you can do, it's, it's, it, it just sounded the same to me. And I started laughing about it. Well, I'm, you have every right to because that's that's actually kind of true. And this is another thing that we've kind of whiffed on. I might have talked about it with you guys, but I've definitely talked about it with other folks. It's like there's when you talk about environmental health and occupational health and safety, there's there's um, different tiers of controls that we engage in. One that the top tier is en- administrative control engineering controls than PPE, right? Administrative controls are like, don't stay home or don't put your employees in a position where they're going to be at risk from health, from health problems. Number two is if you're going to have any kind of risk, the engineering controls, engineer the surroundings so that they're at lowest risk, which for in this case would have been provide adequate ventilation and, and, and environmental disinfection. And then the third one is after all of that PPE, right? And we just were like, oh, just mask everyone up and have them continue as normal. No, we didn't ha- We didn't tie this into a, a conversation about our ongoing infrastructure issues and how it, if we dropped some tens of billions of dollars on improving ventilation throughout the country, that would have been absolutely fantastic, not just for this pandemic, but for the future respiratory pandemics that are definitely going to be worse than this, Mark my words um and also the administrative controls like we we just did not balance the equation because frankly most of the people who work in public health and make these policies are desk jockeys right oh mm-hmm. i can just go and grab a laptop and work from home it's like sorry you're not working at the pilot gas station right work from home when your job is to like you know be a cashier and it that doesn't mean you just ignore those people because that's those that demographic of people who work the lower wage jobs that have to be in person are again like i said very often afflicted by a lot of the complications that are associated with more severe covid and they have a lot of uh, environmental health concerns and occupational safety concerns that we just completely whiffed on so you're 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 pulling on a really ad, like really relevant thread uh for this conversation well, even like in my industry, you know, what we what we kind of look at when we talk about risk is um, risk avoidance. Like, can you, you know, can you just not do business in a certain way or not do business with this particular vendor to avoid a risk, let's say, or then there then there's risk mitigation, the things that you have to do in order to either, uh, you know, protect yourself or, you know, protect the business. And so you, you kind of touch on that in the way that we look at things. So, you know, who can we avoid doing business with? So like for us, we, you know, we kicked a lot of vendors out of our building just because it was like, look, we're not going to have anybody here. So let's minimize this as much as we can. And then, you know, it was mitigation, you know, it's like, okay, how do we protect the business? What insurance risks, you know, do we need to accept and, and how do we, you know, insure ourselves for that? But then we went towards then, like you said, the personal, what do you do to protect the the frontline people in order to make sure that you're, you're doing things safe. And really what it boils down to is, is that, you know, I think part of it is, you know, you've got the public health side of it. And then the other part is the business side and the business's willingness to, you know, engage in some of this stuff. I can honestly say that I'm lucky enough to work for a company that, you know, took that very seriously and still takes it very seriously. But like you said, you know, there's a lot of these retail positions where they just didn't really do a whole hell of a lot at all. And it really showed. And it's really showing now as you watch, you know, especially like uh, the schools here, you know, we've been getting emails for the last week, you know, talking about make sure your kids have a working Chromebook and a working charger because, you know, while it's a last resort and I'm sitting here going, okay, I get, you know, when we had the kids in school and we had 
you know, this initial uncertainty around COVID, like we really just didn't know. And we kept them home regardless. Yeah, I get that that was rough on kids and that was rough on parents. There's no question about that. But at this point in time where cases are just running rampant, like I'm trying to figure out how in the hell it is that we put in place all of this technology to avoid these risks, but now refuse to use those avoidance tactics. Well, I think well, let's let's unwrap a little bit, right? So the first thing is, you know, we talked about the business the the business side about some how how some businesses did not engage in like as safe public health measures. Like some definitely didn't, right? But there are some industries that just couldn't, right? If your job is retail, you're you can't like just summon up a bunch of robots to do all the work to like stock the shelves, right? You need people to do that. And so you have you have that risk mitigation words. And then when when someone in that industry comes up and says, well, you're imposing all these burdens uh, on us, like how are we expected to do business? A lot of the first response back to that was, oh, you don't care about COVID. All you care about is money. You're a bad person, da 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 da, and making an ad hominem attack. I was like, no, it's it's a, it's a fair question to ask. Like, you yeah. can't just have the whole world run on computers. And on speaking of computers, yeah, I mean, we have the technology, but the technology that we had was kind of thrown together haphazardly and bandaged. Like, oh, we'll just send the kids home and, oh, wait, they don't have laptops because a lot of people at home don't have internet connection because a lot of people don't, right? The, the, the classic story kind of on a bit of a tangent is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was founded where Bill, when Bill Gates was just starting to get kind of early on in his in his career and he was starting to really make it big, he said made some announcement that like he wanted a PC on the desk of every office in the world. And then someone pulled him aside and said, dude, half the world doesn't flush. All right. You got bigger, we got bigger problems in the world than you know whether or not they're choosing to use a PC versus a Macintosh on people's desks. Right. So mm-hmm. there's and that that is kind of that allegory that even though it's true, that allegory really does un- underscore the challenges that we have with business. But yeah, it's we just we we keep thinking it's gonna be over soon. It's gonna be over soon. And so we're just kind of like half assing it. And it's like, okay, maybe we will, maybe we won't, maybe we will. Instead of just embracing, look, this is going to be the reality. COVID's going to be with us. It's we're not going to end this pandemic. It's going to go endemic, if not, if it isn't already endemic right now. And right. we have to adjust to a new normal. And I think that what I'm concerned with is the, I think we also might have talked about this in a previous episode, the language of quote, quote unquote, end the pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. That's op- that's very open ended. It's like people think, oh, COVID's going to go away. COVID ain't going away. So how are we going to embrace the fact that our world is different and adjust to a new normal? It's going to is I think I think people are afraid to take that step as a society. And the the, the leaders, both political and, and business, are afraid to embrace that mentality because it seems it sounds like we're giving up. And that's that's a, that's not correct, but I can definitely see how after 19 months of end the pandemic, end the pandemic, end the pandemic, you changing your tone indicates that you are giving up. So I do see where they're coming from in terms of being struggling to embrace that that side of it. I hope I didn't just ramble for five minutes. No, 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 coherent. no, no, no. And 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 that's one of those things where I've been trying to get people to think about this in a rational sense, you know. When you look a hundred years ago, we had the flu and there was no end to the flu. We still deal with it every year. Influenza is still a thing that comes around. And I've said the same thing about, about COVID, you know, in the early days when we didn't think that there was much of a chance of human to human transmission. Sure. It seemed like, you know, there was going to be a way to end it. But the moment that we knew that it was going to spread like wildfire, that was it. It was game over, you know, what we were trying to do was keep hospitals from being overwhelmed. And what we're trying to do is keep, you know, basically keep from having fucking refrigerator trucks stashed at every hospital for when the bodies started piling up. And we all knew that, you know, at least in, in, at least in terms of like the scientific realm, that at some point, you know, the virus is going to change. And, you know, everybody kept saying, oh, well, the virus is going to get less deadly. The virus is going to get less deadly. And it's like, yeah, that's our hope is, is that it gets less deadly. And we have every reason to believe that it eventually will. The problem is, is that there is no prediction from one variant to the next, whether this variant is going to be more lethal or not, whether it's going to be more transmissible or not. I mean, when you think about it, what was it like six months ago, we had people freaking about, out about Lambda and what happened with Lambda, 
next to nothing. But now here we are with Omicron and everybody, you know, like our conversation that we had a month ago. Oh, well, it's less lethal, but it spreads about, you know, four times as fast. So we went from we went from having this whole issue of it's like, oh, well, we're not going to have to worry about this to, you know, our caseload average at its worst of the pandemic before was on average 295,000 cases a day. And we've tripled that astoundingly. And so what does that mean when you have one third of the deaths, but three times the cases, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, our hospitals are any less full. Yes. The virus may be, may be less severe, but we're still impacting the health system the same way because the math balanced itself out. I, I've, the phrase that you you gave last time I was on the show was like, to summarize my rambling, was like, a small portion of an enormous number can be larger than a large proportion of a smaller number. I was like, yep. that's literally what we're facing, right? And I mean, just to drop a little bit of general science in this, is like the microbial evolution and like genomic epidemiology and emergence of new variants and that kind of stuff like that's actually what my training is in like that's my subsect of epidemiology that i would like actually have training and i'm published in right and um we've known this forever and it's it's on not it's not just with viruses and it's bacteria and fungi as well as right when you have these when you have strains that are circulating, they fill what's called an echo, like some people call it an ecological niche. It's like you, they're able to fill this, you know, respiratory pathogen place where they can, you know, literally take root and cause infection and spread. And the, the number one way by which um, pathogens will evolve, it's not just that they kind of gradually mutate over time. It's what we're seeing with these like resurgence and takeover of new variants that, you know, predominate the population and what makes those new variants kind of take over the old ones is their ability overwhelmingly their ability to um transmit right there so there are certain infections there are certain mutations that will allow a pathogen to spread more quickly or more easily or be more resilient to certain kinds of you know cleaning or disinfecting or antimicrobial therapy all of that is down to like can the bacteria or the virus or whatever survive long enough to reproduce and part of that key part of that is transmission so with omicron we were fortunate there were a bunch of those mutations in the spike protein that allowed it to transmit more quickly for various reasons both related to the vaccine and related to immunity and related to binding energies in the spike protein and i don't want to go down that biophysics route um but the point is it it had a bunch of mutations that allowed it to fill that ecological niche more effectively than delta so it surged right sometimes those will also make those variants more deadly it's not always guaranteed and it's just kind of this balance between a lot of different factors between like host immunity the pathogens rate of evolution what the function the molecular functions of those mutations actually confer so you're absolutely right the 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 tldr is there there is no guarantee historically things do trend towards the like flu cold like eventual balance that we have where it's like pathogens find a way to like spread at a good enough rate for them to survive but they're not as deadly because we kind of have the vaccines and we have the immunity like built up over millennia to to kind of survive but that's we're talking years and years and years at minimum we're not talking about you know one more we're good right <laughs> and right. honestly I'm, I'm just grateful that omicron took this much of a step down in, in virulence or, or severity of disease that it did and i was honestly very shocked that it was this this low in terms of its hospitalization and death rate but there's no guarantee that the next mutation that makes the next variant much more effective at spreading can also make it more deadly we just don't really know we just can't answer those questions Exactly. And that's, and that's one of those things where it's like, you know, the, we're still young in this pandemic, whether people want to believe it or not, because I mean, how long did they consider the, the, the Spanish flu uh, pandemic? It was like, what, three, four years or something like that before they finally, before it finally went endemic, you know, cause you saw several spikes over the course of years and years where you, you would have these huge, huge spikes that would start, just wiping people out. In fact, I was looking at old charts of, you know, how they would hit the different cities at different times. And you could literally just watch like where, where, you know, you would, I mean, it's basically like 
you know, treasure hunting essentially where you could see where one city would get hit first and then the next city would get hit and then the next city would get hit. So you could kind of trace that back and be like, okay, so maybe this, this particular variant came around this area here. So, and well, and that's, you know, luckily thanks to modern technology, we, we have that ability to see that a lot faster and trace this a lot faster. You know, there's been a lot of questions as to whether or not, you know, Omicron was, you know, something that came out of uh humans you know or if this was something that had you know gone to an animal and mutated and then came back to us and and I'm, i don't know that we're ever really going to get an answer to that but what seems to be happening um at least from some of the stuff that i'm reading is is that uh it seems that people who are getting omicron are able to also defend off delta and i'm curious if you're seeing that too well, so Omicron right now is the predominant, is by far the predominant variant in in the United States. It already is. It's like overwhelmingly the majority of um, of cases are Omicron, and that's like that's one. Talk about that ecological niche that I referred to. It's like overwhelmingly most. It was like it was old fashioned COVID. Then it was Alpha or like the UK variant, then whatever, mm-hmm. and then Delta, and then Delta. Delta hasn't like just magically disappeared into nothing. It's just that the Omicron variant is better at transmitting among the population that is susceptible. Mm-hmm. And that includes people that might not have a strong immunity because of the, pre- of their infections from previous variants that don't have that kind of a recognition of um, the new Omicron spike protein. It could just be people who were previously uninfected or, you know, what, what have you, but it's not that Omicron is like, you know, it's not necessarily that people are losing immunity to Omicron or have weaker immunity to Omicron than Delta. It's, it's, it's a more complicated and nuanced discussion than that. It's like, how, how well does immunity from Delta kind of transfer over to immunity from Omicron? And more important, much more, what I'm thinking is, is more of an interesting evolutionary question, at least from purely biology and not society, public health and stability and insurrection is, um, you know what's the next variant going to look like right how is that going to compare to omicron because they're going to have waves of people who were infected with probably delta almost definitely omicron and mostly vaccinated mm-hmm. so for so there's like to, and the vaccines were to the ancestral strains of covid and it's weird to say the word ancestral in this context but it really is if you think about viral generations mm-hmm. so you have ancestral acquired immunity delta natural immunity omicron natural immunity how is that going to what what space is left for the next one and i don't even know the greek alphabet well enough to know what comes after omicron but whatever maybe the omega variant what space does it have to actually fill and find the people that they can infect and if the answer is not a lot of people are able to be infected then then we're going to start reaching that steady state where covid is kind of like you know, just filling in some of the gaps and being what's called an endemic disease. Like it infects a few people. It's not a massive epidemic. It's not sending millions of people to the hospital. That's the the range that we're going to get to. So I just don't know how much more space the virus can evolve in. But the one thing that we do know about microbiology is that microbes always know how to outsmart us. And they always have. They've been outsmarting us since before we were even mammals, right? Mm-hmm. So... So that's, and that's where, you know, you end up with this whole question of, you know, what is it, what is it that we can do to potentially out, you know, outsmart that? Um, Cause you know, you look at some of the vaccines that we've developed and you have things like, you know, we were able to eradicate smallpox. Now there again, you have a virus that doesn't, you know, particularly evolve all that well. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a lot easier to say, yeah, we can do that. But now the question, you know, I think it's Duke that's been working on this is can you create a pan coronavirus vaccine or, you know, something that's pan virus, you know, for a specific virus in order to, in order to take these on. And I think one of the interesting things that I was reading about is whether or not, you know, we're, we're approaching this in a, in the wrong way. Cause, uh, I don't think that we're approaching it in the wrong way, but I'm, I'm thinking in terms of it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I guess for best, better terms is that, you know, in the military, it's, you don't just have one weapon. And if that weapon falls, you're kind of fucked. You kind of have a lot of backup weapons and a lot of backup training. And so T cells, this, this is the interesting one that I was reading about how 
T-cells from the cold, common cold, seem to be very effective at dealing with coronavirus. Now, whether or not that's actually true, what do you think, Dan? Well, I I believe I read that study. So a couple of things. First of all, T-cells, the study is interesting because it used... It's interesting and it's promising, but a couple of things. If the the they used like only a couple of strains of what is called the common cold virus, right? There's only a like there's there's no common cold, right? There's it's not just in the same. It's not even just one virus that has different strains. There's multiple entire different species of virus um, that cause um, the common cold, right? So that's that. Second thing is, I mean, if if T cell mediated immunity is is boosted, what? How do we translate those findings into? something pragmatic right when we look at vaccine media when we look at immunity conferred by any vaccine you're not just looking at numbers of antibodies everyone knows antibodies so we talk about that but the whole picture of the the results that we look at especially like the molecular level is looking at b cells related immunity so b cells the bone marrow derived cells are what create our antibodies and then t cells or your thymus derived cells um perform a lot of other functions but they don't produce antibodies per se they more like target cells that are infected for like a signal for killing and so with b cell mediated immunity and, and and antibodies it's easy to have the discussions oh this boosts a bunch of antibodies so it's it's going to be fine but for t cell immunity you have to see how well a vaccine does you're not going to transfer t cells to millions of people that's just not going to happen. Adoptive transfer of T cells for is is barely scratching the surface of, of experimental therapies in cancer, and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. It's it's mm. exceptionally difficult and expensive to to grow up enough to keep T cells to harvest them, and you know make sure that they are properly on target, or otherwise to manipulate or to 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 change the genetics or the protein expression of those T cells. It's mm-hmm. it's just not really feasible to use T cells as the vector for immunity. But I mean, it's interesting to think about you know whether or not if there is a pan coronavirus vaccine that could be effective how we can see if it stimulates a good enough T-cell response. And I think that's that's important because, oh, T-cells are the answer. No, T-cells are not the answer. They're part of the solution, but they're right. part of the solution within our own bodies. I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then the, and that's kind of where I was going is, is that, you know, you have to have the antibodies, you have to have B-cells, you have to have T-cells, you, you know, and then you've got other issues like what's your white blood cell count look like and, and things like that. You know, you're going to have multiple tools in this toolbox. I think the the I think it's the Pfizer pills that are interesting because they're protease inhibitors. You know, the question. You know, you you have all of these questions, and everybody keeps looking for this one magic bullet. And that's where I'm trying to go is there's, there is there is no, no one, one magic bullet. Magic bullet. <laughs> there, there's no there's no one there's no one magic bullet for honestly most just simple bacterial infections. You have a staph infection, you're looking at a whole barrage of like, okay, what different antibiotics are going to be most effective, right? You don't just have the one antibiotic for a staph infection. You don't have the one pill for the flu. You don't just have we for even for the flu, we don't have a single strain in that flu vaccine, right? It's the 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 most common one is the quadrivalent vaccine. And that's a whole other interesting discussion too, right? So you're you're absolutely right is that public health there you can't have one answer. Um, and I think this is, again, a lot of the problems that we're facing with the discussion about COVID is that a lot of these questions have been flung into the public eye more aggressively than ever before. The, the whole concept of like these, these strains overtaking one another in terms of like this outcompeting of variants is just has never been discussed at the global level before, like never, because it's never really been relevant. And we've also in, I should say it's never been relevant in the era in which we've been able to have such intricately technological and advanced conversations where we have the genomic evidence to do the surveillance and answer those questions. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we don't have the, those kinds of answers for, you know, all kinds of different backup therapies for public health because, you know, we 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 haven't needed to have those massive discussions with the public. And we've kind of let the public down by not empowering people with enough information to know it's not just that people are creating new variants to make us scared. It's like, this is just how it's always worked. But then their question is very fairly, well, if this is how it's always worked, why have we never heard about this before? It's like, uh, because we didn't do a good enough job teaching you. And there's my old, and there's my old uh, monologue that I can get into that diatribe. If we need to teach the public better, if they're going to be on our side. 
So, so then, you know, cause so for me, I, I'm one of those people where I, I read a lot. I tend to read pretty much anything scientific. I, 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 I spend a lot of time, uh, diving into certain things. I mean, our, our, uh, our buddy Adam will be able to tell you about the time I sat down at his dining room table and explained orbital physics to him. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to something as common as public health or, or even just personal health, you know, even though I'm able to recall a lot of this stuff, you know, every, one of the things that we have to, I think we really do need to do better. And, and you kind of talked about this a bit, Dan, is, is that we have a lot of information that's available to the public, but we don't do a good job at all of giving people the complete picture. You know, we, we sat there and, you know, we sat there and we watched as, you know, the media screamed antibodies, antibodies, antibodies. And then the moment, you know, people started taking a look, like we talked about in our last show, it's like, okay, well, what's the right antibody count level in order to reach immunity to COVID? And the answer was, I don't know. And so then, you know, it's like, okay, well, if antibodies aren't going to give us the immunity to COVID, then why should we keep trying? And it's like, well, antibodies are just the one response that we're looking at. It's the one that most commonly we can, we can really gauge how, you know, how effective an, uh, your immune system is going to be against infection. But in reality, it's, you know, are you capable of producing antibodies? What does your B cell count look like? What does your T cell count look like? And being able to give people a complete picture of immunity, but not like it's written out in crayon, but enough to actually give people the information, understand that this is a much more complex discussion than just get the shot and get antibodies. Yeah. And it's, it comes back down to this whole, like, what's our exit strategy. I think we talked about that before, like how there's the COVID's not going away. I think this falls into the larger discussion of how we as a society or as, as public health leadership have strategized how we're going to deal with the pandemic. Cause it was first like go home for two weeks and hopefully this gets contained. Then it was X, then it was Y, then it was, it's like, it was the bandaid approach of like slap band-aids on to try and like, you know, douse the fires as we see them and not having the foresight to sit down with the public and say, look, this is March. It's March, 2020. We're just getting information about this virus. From what we've known in the past, this is going to be a long haul. We are going to make mistakes. There are things that we're going to learn more about, and this virus is going to evolve. And we're going to have a lot of science that comes into play that we've not really talked about a lot at the public eye. And some of that science, there are gaps in that science, and we're going to find things out. We needed to have that kind of layout conversation to keep it real with the American people and say, look, stuff's going to go down. It, there's going to be things that are confusing and we're not going to get everything right 100% of the time. And there's going to be things that we learn along the way. I think because we did not establish that ethos of the American public nearly well enough. And so now when we have these new answers that come out and these new variants that come out and these new suggestions that come out, it's always seen as, well, two things. One, they knew this all along and they were hiding it from us. Or two, they have no goddamn idea what they're talking about in the first place. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. But yeah, we have no the... idea, we have no goddamn idea what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and we're just right. trying to play catch up. Yeah, instead of trying to play catch up, but at least having that conversation of being real with the American public was like, look, we please trust us. We are in a difficult situation. We're trying to keep it real with you. Here's what we're expecting. Here's the five-year plan for this response. And that was what we failed at because we thought we could do a two to four to six week response and it'd be over. And that has historically never, ever, ever, ever happened in the history of an emerging infectious disease, especially respiratory disease, right? As soon as it's out, they we've only wiped two, we've only wiped one effect officially disease off the planet to our knowledge. That was smallpox. And that took decades. And then polio was almost completely wiped off and we're borderline calling it extinct. It was very close, but there's, reasons in the microbiology of that in those infections as to why we could do that that are just not true for coronavirus so why did we go into this whole situation thinking oh we can just contain this and it'll be fine as opposed to saying look we need to start thinking in the long term and that's been our fundamental failure from the beginning of not having that long-term goal of if we know it's not going away we know this is going to get complicated we know there's a lot of signs that are going to get flung into the public eye what do we do about it that series of conversations, if they happened, the answers were not satisfactory. 
Public Access America. It's always funny because, like, especially because as you know, libertarians, we get a ton of shit, even amongst other libertarians. We're... I think political philosophy is a lot like religion, and where there's moments you have to go on faith and trust what somebody else is saying. The main, the main focus is it's like less dependence on the government because, well. We've seen how that's gone. And you don't have to do that if you think about it in a human way. You know, more dependence on connections with each other. You can always bring it back to what would one human do for another? What would a hundred do for a hundred? People looking out for people. Find Public Access America anywhere you find your favorite podcast every Sunday and Thursday. And join the chat on YouTube at Public Access America every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Communities looking out for community. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making. In the making. This conversations didn't exist. And, and, you know, you have the question of, you know, were scientists allowed? I think, I think this, unfortunately, this is where it will get more political and yeah. I don't expect us to go down this road, but the question is, is were, were scientists allowed to be honest with that? And I think the answer is no, because you have that balance of, we don't want to freak the public out, but at the same time, by doing by doing what was done, we ended up with you know scientists looking like they're just moving the goalposts goal arbitrarily, and so it's 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 that striking a balance of what are you allowed to say and what information are you allowed to put out in the face of a new disease, versus who's going to restrict the flow of information, and how are they going to restrict that flow. Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of, even within public health, right? Public health is vast. You have not just infectious diseases, but you have, you know, opioid overdoses and maternal child health. And I don't know, I'm just thinking about the different departments that I worked for. It's like, there's massive, massive chasms between a lot of the disciplines that are collectively considered public health. Public health is as broad a term as healthcare right? You don't go to your family medicine physician when you need, you know, an appendix removed, right? You don't like there's, there's, there's major separations and divisions within healthcare, not like emotion, but structurally it's like you have certain people who specialize in certain things. And so what we in infectious disease did not do a good enough job was relating to the rest of the public health folks that like, you know, this is going to be different than what we expect. And the reality is that the majority of people who do work in public health overall work on things that are not infectious diseases. And now people were trying to get involved in that and because we needed them in the surplus. And we, we needed to have these more fundamental conversations with them. And it just didn't, I just don't think it happened. Again, in my experience and what I saw, I did not personally see anybody being repressed. I just think there was a lot of people in public health who were themselves had a misunderstanding of where this was going and what was going on not because they were stupid or not because they were being, you know, malicious. It's just infectious diseases are really, really complicated, right? They always happen and they were around before we existed as a species and they'll be around long after we're gone as a species, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to manage that. And, and it's, we need to embrace that uncertainty and have those proactive communications with people who are outside of our field in order to kind of, justify our actions and also to get people's feedback and also to learn what we're not getting right because we can't possibly know everything about infectious diseases and everything about the society it's just too much to know so then the question i would say is is just kind of wrapping out this hour you know what do we put out for people to actually take in that they're going to be able to understand like it's like like we've talked about people aren't stupid but they have different levels of understanding and <clears throat> for you and i to sit down and talk about you know different different functions of the body and and mathematics of of pandemics is a little a little beyond what most people need to know so the question is is how do we put out a series of useful pieces of information that the general public is going to be able to read and understand you know how how a disease is going to evolve, what response should look like, the, how we're going to communicate those findings, and how do we address the public at large? You know, you think about it, a lot of what we did 
was we dusted off playbooks from the fucking 1950s and that didn't work clearly but we also have a greater understanding and greater communication tools now than we did before so you know how do we explain it in such a way it's like look this is what the picture is and how do we put that information out there i would say now that we're well into this pandemic but before we get into the next well, I think I'm going to defer my answer to um, an outstanding organization. It's called the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. It's at the University of Minnesota. And they have been brushed off because they're not like Ivy League or Berkeley or Stanford or whatever. But they've been doing kind of keeping it real infectious disease science for a very long time, since at least the early 90s. And I think they, they've been putting out some really great messaging about this. And um, I, I, I might have sent it to you before, but I'll definitely make sure that it's sent out. Um, they recently published a great article that was like eight things that we got wrong about communication with the pandemic. And one of the, one of the major things that was listed on that was like, what I talked about before was, you know, we didn't keep it real with the public and talk about the situation at large, right? It's not a the in order to have proactive conversations with anybody about anything, you have to make sure that both parties are in a situation, in a space, in an emotional and mental headspace to be willing to exchange information in a positive way. And we core dumped a bunch of information, assumed the public would be fine with it, and projected a lot of confidence to try and just get them to listen without having that primary conversation of, look, we got some stuff going down. We need your help. Can you listen to us? We're going to give you some information and it's going to be weird. Let's have this back and forth. Let's have this community-based participation in the way that we're approaching this. Th those, those are the series of conversations that need to be addressed at the beginning of any disaster. It's not just, or any public health crisis or anything, right? You need to get the people who are affected or are going to be affected to be in a point where they're going to want to listen and want to trust. And I'm not saying that 100% of people are going to, like, this is America, right? There's tens of millions of people who will never trust the government no matter what you say, right? But there's the sizable majority that are frustrated because of this kind of Band-Aid approach, and they go hand in hand. We needed to have a keep it real conversation where we got people to be a little more aware of the situation as a whole we needed to be real with ourselves in order to have to start that conversation say look this is not something that we're gonna just you know eliminate we're not gonna declare victory through eradication so how are we gonna go forward with this you know the, I, I think that's that's much more complicated that's much more of a fundamental question and what we need to focus on as and hopefully work on in the next weeks to months to years as opposed to trying to optimize the way that we talked about uh, antibody-related immunity or the emergence of variants, like that—that stuff—that stuff can only happen if we have the public wanting to listen to us because we've been honest with them about our own infallibility. We we are all fallible creatures. We are not the only. We're not the sole source of knowledge and truth in public health. And there are things we're going to get wrong, and we made the fundamental mistake of thinking, oh, if we just kind of project enough confidence and say things with enough authority, we'll probably be right and it'll be fine. It's like, no, you have to embrace that, that uncertainty. And people will respect that. People respect a little bit of humility every once in a while. So I hope that answers your question. It's not about the scientific details. It's about being in the right state of mind with the public to know that this is not going to be a perfect road. Yeah, and, and also, too, like, what kind of 101 level, like, brochures and flyers can we put out there for just basic information to understand where things are going to go and how the basics of it work? We don't need people to understand the entire picture of what a specific virus is going to do. We just need people to have enough of an understanding that, you know, this is this is what's happening. This is the road, you know, this is roadmaps of the past. This is, you know, you know, here's what responses could look like. Here's what we could be look like, looking at in terms of the virus. I remember when we had Ebola start that outbreak again, everybody freaked out because we've seen the horror images of what Ebola looks like and does to a person. 
but we didn't have that same response when it came to COVID either. You know, everybody just assumed it was a cough. And yeah, so and, think- and but that 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 conversation, I think it's I think it's really fair for you to bring up. But again, it's like having those projection conversations of this is where we could be going. This is our situation. It's we need to now we're needing to have that long term thought process as opposed to thinking about how do we get this spike down? How do we get this you know outbreak under control? Right. Individual outbreaks are done at the local level. Right. But we can't have a national strategy that's focused on dropping down the rates for the next two weeks. I mean, that's part of it. Right. We have to do that. And the whole flatten the curve thing was another in that, that same article by the SIDRAP folks at Minnesota. Um, right. You know, the, where, why did we lose the flatten the curve when we stopped talking about that in like the summer of 2020? It's the, it was the best public health messaging that we ever had in this pandemic. It was a perfect description of everything going on, right? Um, but we need to start having you know honest conversations about what a long-term strategy looks like. We need to make, I agree, making materials, having this discussion, but we need to be real with ourselves, but that's where we're at. That's where we're at as a society. And that's where we're at as a government. That's where we're at in public health. That's what we're at in the hospital emergency rooms, right? Having accepting that reality is not something that we've really embraced in terms of the infrastructure that can respond to the pandemic, right? And that's that is a more fundamental question. It's like once we get there, I'm sure we can get the messaging right, but we need to be real with ourselves. Yep, absolutely. Meanwhile, Jason looks like he's frozen over there, (laughs) he's just enjoying the show. Absolutely. I think I think his mind is just absolutely blown over there right now. No, I comprehended and I lost my thread a couple times. It's like watching two frogs jump around each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> like um Dan attempted to do that with uh the people of reason and progress. You know, he they they spent a lot of time putting scientific information out after 2016, especially to get people trained in learning scientific terms and scientific things that weren't full on scientific, but were relatable to people. But that took a turn. But I think that's the goal is long-term education. We got to get past the headline of it. And we have to, we have to make maybe the beginning of the article more relatable to people before it goes into in-depth detail. Maybe we need to structure our articles so that the education level increases in the in it you know what i mean and so that that would be my hope in messaging is that there's people like jeffrey and dan who have these simple conversations that lead people into the bigger conversations that they can have and i loved every minute of the conversation i just want to wrap up and say that my my thought on shingles was that we need to worry about these long-term effects of COVID, and we can relate that to a past virus called chickenpox and yeah. there, there's long-term effects of that, just like there'll be long-term effects of COVID. So it's it's a real serious thing to look at. Thank you for yeah. being here, and we will be right back. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more. Access America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. 
wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio, Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.